Thanks for tuning in for this special edition of Up and Adam, where we take our interview with Chris Lambert that we had in bits and pieces of last week. He was around for most of the entire previous week in different segments. We take all those segments and put them together. It's as simple as that. To get the whole Chris Lambert interview, that is what this is all about. We talk about everything from the latest news of the Smart family suing Cal Poly for many things, including a negligence and wrongful death. We talked about what his reaction was when he found out that Paul Flores got attacked in prison. His music. I mean, first and foremost, Chris is a musician. We talk about the scoring of the podcast that he did himself. Also, his new music, an album that he's been writing for over five years and is about to release. We also talk about some of the what's next for Chris, including another podcast that he is going to release and including some other crime-related topics, documentary topics that he's willing to explore. We round out the conversation by keeping it light, talking about everything from one-star Yelp reviews to his problem with way too many open tabs in his browser on his phone. We get into it all. My sincere thank you to Chris Lambert for his time and conversation, and to you for listening and for your interest. And now, our interview with Chris Lambert of the Your Own Backyard podcast. Chris, thank you for being up and at him. You're very welcome. Look at this. So, it's first of all, it's I want we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff. We're going to talk about your music too today. Cool. Also, uh, the latest with the the Kristen Smart case. Let's talk about the latest. What what went down? Yeah, I um, you know, I've discussed with the Smart family several times about what the next steps were for them, and this was something that they had discussed a number of times: is what what happens with Cal Poly. Um, I think it's obviously it's not a monetary thing for them it's more about principle and feeling like cal poly really got away with very little taking very little responsibility for their part in destroying a crime scene like failing to investigate somebody who red flags were everywhere and just treating this like a missing person's case you know a runaway case for way too long until it was too late and refusing to turn over jurisdiction to the sheriff's department who had the resources and everything allocated to them to investigate a homicide as opposed to a campus police department which did not and so for years they felt kind of gross about that like just what happens here and obviously so many years have passed it wasn't clear whether the statute of limitations was going to be an issue and all that and so as i've checked in with them about what they're going to pursue next this was one that sort of took the forefront of something has to be done you know? now obviously you don't speak for the smart family right but you obviously are very close and you, you know the situation very well and you've been reporting on the situation incredibly well throughout there was a complaint a lawsuit was filed right so basically negligence negligent infliction of emotional distress and then wrongful death and so there's a few different angles in there that um, try to cover all bases basically alleging that because cal poly did such a poor job of investigating this disappearance from the beginning that you know all the mistakes the sheriff's department has made over the year which they i think have taken responsibility for and have acknowledged a number of times in interviews and times I've sat down with them. Cal Poly never has. Cal Poly has always sort of been like, it's not our fault. You know, we, there's nothing we could have done to stop it. But then there's the, the record and stuff that came out during the trial, things that were anecdotal that I had talked about in the podcast about Paul Flores and his history on campus. Those have always been anecdotal with very little supporting evidence because they have maintained lock and key over all of their investigative files. For 27 years, they have not turned over their investigative records to the Smart family, 
to go through and see what was done. Like, what did you do to look for our daughter? What did you do to look into this suspect? And because those are all under lock and key, they've only been suspicions, essentially. So when they came out during the trial in 2022... So that was really the first time during the trial... That was the moment. In discovery, all this stuff comes out. Correct. And so the smarts, again, have still not been given those files, but because defense attorneys would bring up sentences from different reports... The smarts are sitting there in the audience going, where did that come from? You know, we've yeah. uh, even I, as the reporter who had heard about these incidents, was like, there we go. There's proof that there is a document somewhere that says Paul Flores did blank on such and such date prior to Kristen going missing. So this the was school knew about it. Other creepy things he was doing to women? Right. Harassment and stalking, essentially. Wow. Um, you know, the story I told in one episode about him climbing the trellis of a woman's off-campus apartment, right. banging on her door in the middle of the night and refusing to go home. He's drunk. The cops were called out. That was always just an anecdote. It was like, we know this happened, but we don't know the woman's name. We don't know the address of where it happened. We don't know the date and time exactly. We just know it was around here, and we've heard that it happened. So now we've got a document, you know, it still hasn't been turned over to the Smart family, but they now know it exists in the record. So, so this, this lawsuit basically says you have refused to give these to the Smart family. Right. Thus, the statute of limitations can't really start running until they know what's in those records, right? There's a file cabinet somewhere with a deadbolt on it. And until you open it up and let them look, how do they know? that they can or can't sue you. It's not like it, it's not like they turned over all of their records in 96 and the smarts waited 27 years to do something about it. Right. The smarts still don't have any of it. Therefore, the statute of limitations argument, which is really what it's going to come down to, has too much time passed for them to sue the school. Well, it depends on how the court is going to define when that statute clock started running. Did it start running the day Kristen disappeared or did it start running or does it start running when Cal Poly finally turns over all of their records and gives the smarts and their attorneys an opportunity to see the extent of the mistakes that were made? Are the are there different time limits, different statutes of limitations? Is like wrongful death different than, you know, the infliction of emotional distress or do You know, I don't I don't really know. From what I've heard, the statute is typically one to two years for all of those crimes. Right. Mm-hmm. And and therefore you're going to have this a court is going to need to decide this. And I've seen since the news has broken, it's been all over mainstream media, CNN and everybody brings in an attorney and it's it's frustrating because they'll they'll get a talking head on who doesn't know anything about this case who will just read a few sentences and then they'll go you know Nancy the problem we're going to have is that a long time has passed but they don't know the nuances of yeah. why this has taken so long you could you could just as easily say too much time has passed therefore Paul Flores will never be charged and we're in here in the future and he was charged and he's currently sitting in prison answering for this crime that took place 25 years before he was arrested. So this is no different. That's, that's a, it's fascinating. Do you think Cal Poly just settles? If I, you had to guess? I really don't know. I think... Um, I have to imagine. I don't know. I feel like they... Why, who wants this, right? Right. Um, in my dealings with Cal Poly administration, the people who I have talked to, they seem like kind, good-hearted people. I've gotten almost nothing but support from Cal Poly and their staff. And but they're a university; they're a California State University, and they're gonna they're gonna have some big shot attorneys who are good at this kind of stuff. So I don't think it's gonna come down to like the right thing to do or the sensible thing. I think it's gonna be 
What does the court think? Do you think if you had to guess why the smarts did this now, would it be because of all the stuff that came out during the trial? Or was it recent remarks by uh, Jeffrey Armstrong, Cal Poly president, that kind of said, did he kind of step in it in a way where he was like, hey, mistakes were made. Things should have been done differently. Do you right. think, are they, are they hanging on that? as him opening the door to perhaps liability. I don't think the smarts certainly are. I don't think for the smarts that was all that big of a deal, but certainly for the legal end of it, I think it might have been a mistake for him to speak to a reporter who is asking questions and to say something like things should have been done differently because now there's documented evidence that the current president of Cal Poly, who was not there at the time, believes mistakes were made by Cal Poly. Correct. That's Which we've all believed we for a knew. long time. Yeah. And I think in his heart, he knows that's true. And he was just trying to be kind and, and say the right thing. But to say it on record, I think was probably a mistake. How do you feel? Like, do you think the sheriff's department is watching this news going, oh, are we next or what? No, because I think the sheriff's department always knew that this was in the wings. Yeah. I think the sheriff's department knew how the smarts felt about the way Cal Poly had done this. And the people that I spoke to in the sheriff's department certainly had the same take on it is like, look, we know the public hates us. We know the public is so upset about the way this case was handled. But you got to understand, this started from day one. We didn't even get the case until 30 days after she had gone missing. And a lot of mistakes were made before it came to us. I mean, it feels like there was so many critical mistakes made so early that there was never a chance for this to go right. Right. And, and part of, and this is just my personal, this isn't necessarily in the lawsuit, but one of my personal issues with this is that I feel like behind the scenes, they knew from the first interview with Paul Flores, this is the guy, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's very clear. They did call in two DA investigators to sit down and interview Paul because they believed there was enough there that it's like, this is our guy. But publicly, they continued to maintain that there was no crime. And uh, like, I brought a newspaper clipping here that I wanted to show you. This uh, um, this ran in the Cal Poly Mustang News on June 20th. Headline, so investigators, is, parents remain clueless about missing Poly student. So this is almost a month after Kristen goes missing and, you know, Four or five days after Kristen went missing, they sat down with Paul and interviewed him. And when he left that day, they're like, we need to call in some other people to deal with this. They got the DA involved. They started talking to the sheriff's department. They kind of knew what had happened here. But publicly, the lead investigator, Mike Kennedy, said to the paper, quote, there is no evidence of any criminal activity. It doesn't look like she was the victim of a crime. So we are pursuing this case as an adult missing under unusual circumstances. So this is long after they suspect that Paul Flores was responsible for her going missing. Publicly, they continued to maintain nothing happened here. And that's my issue with this is that it feels like Cal Poly was mainly trying to protect their own reputation. Yep. They didn't want to scare people from enrolling the next semester and or I believe their quarter system maybe. Um, but they they didn't want to scare students off. And they've always sort of shrugged off accusations that they had done anything wrong. I've heard from a lot of people who started listening to the podcast. I attended Cal Poly in 1999 to 2004. I never heard this girl's name. Like I didn't know this happened. And so that's an issue. That's an issue that it seems like Cal Poly knew that a crime had taken place on their campus, but was publicly saying that they didn't believe one had. And I don't believe that's true. I believe that even as that investigator was saying those things to the paper, he knew that something had gone seriously wrong. Yeah. Like they were just kind of riding that wave of no one really being arrested, no one really acting on these 
things and like well they're like well okay well if there's nothing if there's no there there then i guess we're cool like you know but but no it it kind of hit a lot of the the missteps and man that's so interesting right So that's what it's going to come down to. It's really, like, I think a principal issue. It's should a university be allowed to bungle an investigation this much and then just walk away from it with, you know, kind of unscathed. And I think that has never sat right with the smarts. You know, I don't speak for them again, but my... um, my conclusion is that they've just always felt like that was not right, that something hadn't been done correctly. Sure. Plus the way that Cal Poly treated them over the years, you know, for a long time, they didn't hear from the administration. They had a number of times where they called the campus and tried to get information. And it was like people in the administrative building didn't even know there was a missing student. They, they, it was just not being properly discussed the way that it should have been. Now the complaint is they want a jury trial. Right. They want a jury to hear this out and make their minds yeah, up. Yeah, and I, I would assume that's probably what the law firm thinks is going to be best for this. Oh, is sure. That, I would imagine um, so. I, I can't imagine the smarts are prepared to sit through another jury trial, but, you know, it's what what's the right thing to do in this situation? And if yeah. that's what it's going to take, then that's what it's going to take. Yeah, I have to imagine the school is just going to be like, no, we're not going to... We're going to settle, like right? I mean, I, I don't know, but I, I, that's what I would imagine because th- this is, would not be, you know, I, I think it doesn't behoove them to play that out all the way. Right. You know, at some point, I guess a judge is going to have to make up his or her mind on the statute of limitations and when it actually does start. Right. And then I feel like from then, we're going to know what direction this is going to go and they might just settle. Right. Yeah, I think it could be a coin flip. I think yeah. that Cal Poly's attorneys will probably push for the statute argument that too much time has passed and obviously i think there's enough i think there's enough there that i question whether that should be an issue it's so weird because even if they do that they're still sweeping it under the rug oh too much time has passed it still doesn't take responsibility right i was reading the comments on your post and wanting to see kind of we were talking about this off the air a little bit you had mentioned too like you were really kind of wanting to see what the temperature of the room was with people and i was just hoping not to see comments like oh it's about money or da 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 and it was like the vast majority of comments were completely supportive of of Cal Poly taking responsibility for this. Yeah, I think I think the public feels strongly that Cal Poly was a major part of why this wasn't resolved quickly. Yeah, and so and they know, you know, you, from following along, you know that this is not a family that's looking for compensatory monetary damages. This is about principle that. This should be an inconvenience for a university. When a student goes missing on campus and then 25, 26 years later, somebody is convicted of murder and the theory is that she died in his dorm room on the campus, which several people have slept in over the years and and, and they've treated it like it didn't happen. That should be a major inconvenience to that university. And it has not been thus far. It's been swept under the rug and not treated like a serious crime. And it's, it's time that it should be. Is that dorm room still like, in active use? It is, yes. Really? Yeah, I've been in there. The last occupants showed me around and let me take pictures and stuff. And um, in, What was that like? Like, how did that feel in your, in your heavy, bones? Heavy, kind of haunting. Um, it was just quiet, you know, like no one's talking. You just walked in, you're like, and they're like, this, this is their home. Right. Like, they go in there, they probably, they do their homework, they have drinks, they, whatever. Like, that's the way they live as a college yeah. student. And it's randomly assigned, so it's just random who's going to get assigned that room. But once they did, and they listened to the podcast, they're like, that's our room. So they messaged me and said, if you would like to come look around, we'd be willing to have you. And it's inconvenient. Like they, a number of people have said when they were staying there, somebody would come knock on the door and be like, did you know someone was murdered in this room? And nobody wants that room. No. And uh, 
yeah, it, it's unusual. There's some unusual things that have taken place in that room. The way that the furniture was hand handled and moved out, the way that the carpets were changed and the windows. It's like something went on in this one, but not the one next door. Oh, really? So, yeah, it's like Cal Poly was aware right away that some of this stuff needs to be saved in storage and maybe fingerprinted and searched for fibers wow. and, and yeah. all that stuff. And so the very next quarter, they just moved some unsuspecting student into that room who had no idea until news crews start showing up and saying, can we get some shots of this dorm? Yeah. I think just to walk in there and feel the energy of a room that, I mean, that Kristen was in. Yeah. And that, you know, I, I just can't even, wow. It must have been very heavy. Yeah. I, I sat in there for a long time. It was important to me just to be there. Do you feel like when stories break, like on this new lawsuit or say what happened to Paul a couple months ago, like, okay, here, I got to go to the laptop. We got to go, like, we're going to pound out a story. Like, 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 you owe it to us to do that? Somewhat. I yeah. feel like I'm inevitably, I'm going to be asked about it. And so I try to be a little bit ahead of the curve and try to make sure that I'm prepared for that sort of thing. And, um, but yeah, I feel like I've sort of done what I can do on this and, and behind the scenes, I've done a lot since the trial ended to find Kristen. That's like still a big priority is to figure out where Kristen's remains were moved to. And so I've done a lot of work on it that I have not reported on. And I feel like the reporting is the bottom priority for me. It's like, I don't have to publicly say anything until I know for a fact that I have something worth sharing. But then, you know, you have these big breaking news incidents where I have to address it. Well, I can't wait to ask you, you're going to be here all week, and I can't wait to ask you, you know, where you were when you found out what happened to Paul and how, how that felt. What's next for you? What's, you know, you're going to jump on another case. I know your music is, uh, it's the first album in like years yeah. that we're putting out. So I'm so excited to continue back with Chris Lambert. He's up and at him. Thank you, my man, for being here again. No problem. So we, you got it. If you didn't listen to yesterday's uh, show, we talked about the the new news, which was a complaint leveled by uh, the Smart family to Cal Poly, suing them for a bunch of things, including wrongful death. Right. This investigation was just botched from the very beginning, and Cal Poly is a major, major reason for that and the how it was handled. And with President Jeffrey Armstrong kind of recently saying, yeah, mistakes were made, uh, things could have, should have been done differently, it might have kind of set this tone for kind of accepting some liability, at least in the public, which I think might have spurred this. I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, again, we're not, I'm not speaking, you're not speaking for the smart family and I don't have them here, but I want to ask you what, where were you when you found out when Paul got his throat slit in prison? Yeah. That was a huge story. That must've been like, what? And did you think he was, we were all kind of thinking like, oh, this might be it. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was sitting at home on my couch and I got a message from somebody who was very close to the situation who said, I just wanted to let you know that this had happened. And my initial thought is there's no way, there's no way that happened. And I get a lot of messages sometimes where it's like, Hey, Paul just died. You know, just out of the blue, somebody will message me something like that. Hey, I just heard from a friend who works at the prison that Paul's dead. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then it always turns out to be, um, Not true. yeah, just facetious information that somehow came from some rumor or something. So I filed that under, there's no way that happened. And then maybe 10 minutes later, I got a message from a completely different person saying, hey, I don't know if you heard or not, but Paul just got his throat slit. And I thought, okay, there might be something to this yeah. here. And so I started preparing a post. Like, let me just, if this did happen, let me just get out in front of it. But I'm not going to do anything until I can confirm this happened. And so, um, 
you know, I, I won't call anybody out because they were, they came to me anonymously, but I, I heard from probably two dozen people close to that situation reached out to me throughout the day, giving me updates from, you know, the prison itself, medical assistance team, the hospital he was flown to. Like I heard from a lot of people, um, different situations. And I was, I was preparing for the worst. I thought Paul might not survive this. And, and I do want to post and just say, you know, Paul Flores has been killed. If that's what happened. Would that have been the worst? Um, You know, I don't think it's weird to ask that. I feel bad asking that, but then I don't. It, it, it's strange. (laughs) I don't want Paul Flores to die. And the Smart family didn't want Paul Flores to die. I mean, I spoke to them as it was ongoing. It's like, we don't know what's going to happen. We were kind of sick to our stomachs. Like, Paul Flores has information about where Kristen is. And there's a lot of people who think, well, maybe his parents didn't tell him where they... But Paul Flores, you know, I don't think any of them want Paul Flores to not be alive. We'll go back and say, Paul Flores' parents might not have told Paul what? Where the body was relocated to. So the the theory being that if if the body was relocated without Paul's help, he might not even know where she is today, which is possibly true. But that's not what it comes down to. It's just like, what good is going to come from the fact that Paul is no longer alive? That's not, you know, they didn't, they weren't pushing for him to get the death penalty. They just want him to tell where Kristen is or just admit what happened, right? That these people, they don't seem, the Flores family, they don't seem very sharp. You know, they don't seem like very smart people, you know, from from Paul to uh, the dad. How do they manage to get away with this? How do they relocate a body? Like, I, I can't even imagine, you know, a savvy smart person being able to do that and get away with it, much less, you know, someone like them. I don't get it. Right. It's. I don't think it's about being smart. It's about being silent. It's about refusing to speak. And, you know, a bit. another big part of it is people have asked, why didn't the police keep surveillance on their houses at all times? So if they did relocate the body, but from a judicial standpoint, what it takes to get 24 hour surveillance on somebody's house, just based on suspicion, especially this many years after the initial incident, it's just, I, I don't think people know what has to go into that behind the scenes. It seems logical that that should have been done, but then you come to find out, it's like you need a number of judges to sign off on this. Then you have to have people who are actually keeping the surveillance. You have to have them hidden in a way that the Flores family doesn't see. Even just getting, you know, let's say they were to install a video camera on one of the poles outside of Ruben's house. Ruben comes flying out of his house every time someone drives up the hill. Right. So it's not easy to pull that kind of thing off. But... Regardless of that, I think people suspect that Kristen's body was relocated without Paul's assistance, and so they don't think he necessarily knows where she is anymore. But from just a humanitarian standpoint, I and the Smart family and everybody I talked to close to the situation was hoping that Paul would not die, that that was not going to be the outcome of this. I, I was prepared if that happened to just put out a social media post to address it. And I knew right off the Chuck, bat. Could you I'm imagine the comments to. on that? Wow. Yeah. And, and even when I did initially post, okay, you know, <clears throat> Paul has been taken to the hospital. He's in fair condition. Now things have changed and it doesn't look like he's going to die. I didn't anticipate how like gleeful it would make the public. I, especially the people who have followed my podcast all this time. I didn't anticipate that the overwhelming sentiment would be like, oh, it's too bad that he didn't suffer and die right there. And the number of people commenting, I want to donate to the person who did this. Like, I want to give money to his commissary. I was just going to ask that and, next. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into the the perpetrator, if you don't mind. I, I 
I'd prefer not to share information about who he is. Other news organizations have already done that. His name's out there and all that. But I I did some research into him and I spoke to some people who knew him. And, And this is not a good person. He didn't do this for the right reasons. This is a, my understanding, a convicted child rapist who also murdered his girlfriend, who's been serving two back-to-back life sentences without the possibility for parole. He's in a position where he has nothing to lose. They're just going to add time to this infinite number of time that he's already serving. He has nothing to lose in this situation, and I think he thought it would make him important or famous, and, and was banking on people like that, who would just be so happy that Paul Flores had been taken out, that they would send him money and high five him and put him on TV shows. And so I eventually shut off comments on my post because I thought, I understand how you feel, but maybe just go post it on your own. Just go share this and say, I'm so happy about this, but don't like leave a depository of comments on my post about how happy you are, because I don't think this is a good situation from anybody's standpoint. Yeah. I think people appreciate that about you. But yeah, what a story, huh? That was that was something. And did you, when you first talked to the smarts after that happened, what was that conversation like? Um, mournful, sort of sad, and we didn't see this coming. And I hope this doesn't end poorly. You yeah. Know? Um, it just, was like the day one, right? Day one that he went into Gen Pop. Yeah, exactly. And this is his first hour in the yard or something, and this person I think had made like an improvised weapon out of some normal object and. From my understanding from the people who were there who witnessed it, um, slit his throat a number of times from basically from his trachea back around one side of his neck to to the back of his neck and sort of left a big open gaping wound and slashed three to five times trying to kill him did not sever any important arteries or anything that would have uh, killed him on the spot. He lost a lot of blood. It was a very serious situation. It was not a minor scratch. And and I saw the way that his attorney portrayed it, you know, uh, without calling me out directly, said his throat was not slit. It was slashed or cut, which is like, you're really getting into semantics there. And I'm reporting directly what the people who saw it described it as. I would say, you know, cutting an open wound into somebody's neck is slit their throat and they, look we're, we're talking about prison people too like they, right. they, he was going to going to slit his throat like, the intention what, was to kill Paul. of course and, absolutely the intention was to kill him and that failed and um he survived he'll probably have a scar for the rest of his life i would imagine wow and um but yeah i i was not rooting for him to die i was not sitting in that hoping that he would die and take any information to his grave because to you know let's go back to the moment that susan flores was recorded in a phone call telling paul you're the only one who can tell me what happened regardless of where Kristen's body ended up paul is the only person alive who knows what happened to Kristen in his dorm room that night and those are details that i think her family would like to know as as upsetting as it would be to know what were their daughter's final minutes like what how did this happen you think you know? he ever gives it up I don't think he's going to give it up until he's in a position where he feels like that's the only way out. And I think right now with the appeals and and those sorts of things in place, he's going to wait as long as possible. You know, look at Scott Peterson. Scott Peterson is, you know, 20 years ahead of Paul as far as a conviction goes, and he's never given it up. And did you see the Innocence Project? I did. Just I saw, took him on. Yeah, the Scott Los Peterson? Angeles Innocence Project, and. Um, there was a docu-series that came out a few years ago about the Scott Peterson trial, and I think it flipped a lot of people who 
prior to that didn't have any doubts now are thinking it's it's really interesting the way that psychologically the way that people respond to true crime and these sorts of things i think it's it's too easy to convince people that something was a little amiss therefore everything you know goes out the window and i experienced that a little bit myself there was a period of time where things were really quiet I think in 2020, when the pandemic was going on, where people started to get suspicious that because things were quiet, that there was some vast conspiracy going on behind the scenes. And I was, you know, you know, there behind the scenes watching some of the stuff happen going, nope, it's just, you know, it takes time and it's methodical and all that sort of stuff. But they started in the absence of information, they started to apply their own theories and things very quickly spiraled out of control. And I thought, it's interesting how much circumstantial evidence I've laid out up to this point that they're willing to completely throw out based on one piece of suspicious information. And so I, I, I've seen that happen firsthand, and I think that's what's happened in Scott Peterson's case from what I've read about it, and especially what, what came out during that trial. I think the vast majority of people have not really looked into all the details, and they've just heard... Have you read or, or seen anything that makes you kind of go... Maybe he didn't do it. I mean, didn't he? I mean, if, correct me if I'm wrong, and this is just memory of it, but didn't he, like, he had an affair with the Fresno girl. Right. He tells her, my wife's dead. Yes. He went to Mexico, changed his hair. Like, I mean, like, he had all, I mean, what, what are we missing? Right. Well, I think that a lot of people have been fed this, you know, there was this period of time where the serial podcast came out and then yeah. Making a Murderer came out where people were really high on this idea of injustice and that somebody had been done wrong with very little evidence or information. But then you come to find out years later, well, they left a lot of important information out of that documentary yeah. because that's what a documentary is. It's a, it's somebody's point of view, my own, you know, my, my own podcast. It's like, this is my point of view based on what I have here. I'm not trying to mislead anybody, but I'm laying out what I've discovered. And here's my conclusion based on that. You might come to a different conclusion, but I think a lot of these docuseries, we're sort of riding that wave for a while of people are really into the idea of wrongful convictions, which is understandable. A wrongful conviction is a horrible thing. It's like everyone's person's nightmare. Right. But as I've said in the past, I feel like if the system, if the judicial system is working appropriately, people who murder people will be punished for it. And people who did not will be found innocent that if it's working correctly, it's, it's a complex system though. And so there's always, variances and things that can get in the way of that. Absolutely, these things should be looked into if somebody sincerely believes, I don't think this person committed this crime. Um, in the case of Scott Peterson, I just don't think that's that's true. I think there's more than enough there, and I think his behavior it, it's just the cherry on top. It's a lot of the things that he was doing. It's like, I can't imagine that you would do that if your wife was missing and you didn't know right. where she was, but then people will point to that and say, but that doesn't make him guilty. No, it doesn't, but the circumstantial evidence does and the 12 people who sat on that jury are the only people who matter when it comes to whether or not they prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt i feel the same way in paul's case you might not think there's enough evidence there but you also weren't sitting on a hard pew for five months in that courtroom listening to every word that everyone said you've only read a summary of it and you're basing your conclusions on that the 12 jurors sat through everything so they are the ultimate authority or do you find yourself engaged in a lot of these either true crime documentaries or like, do you find yourself diving into these because of your investigatory prowess or what? No. I, in fact, I dove into them more before I started my own. That I was, I followed the serial case with Adnan Syed and all 
all that and is very interested in the JonBenet Ramsey case and the O.J. Simpson trial That's an interesting things one, yeah. like that D- diving into those things and the breakdown of witness testimony I've watched too many hours of trials that took place in all of those Casey Anthony and all that but once I did my own it's like I don't have the appetite for it the way that I used to yeah and I also just find myself getting more and more frustrated with the way that and like I said, how easy it is to sort of persuade the general public one way or the other, when sometimes in some of these cases, I won't say which ones, but it seems like justice was done. Yeah. And because of people's outcry, they were reversed. And now the victim's families have to deal with it. Oh, it's like, now the person that killed our family member is walking free and people are celebrating it I know. when there is evidence that they did it yeah. and the jurors found them guilty. It's a weird time. What are some of these, it's kind of some quick hits on, I'm curious on these, Can Casey Anthony. Yeah. We think she did it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how she got yeah. out of it. That was crazy. It's interesting. I, I, As I have followed these, I've seen more and more how defense attorneys, what they do is really an art form, you know, and, and same with prosecutors to an extent, that what they do is really an art form. It's theatrical. It's the way that they lay things out. It's the way that they make jurors understand things. And most importantly, it's the way that they make them doubt what the other side is saying. They, and a skillful attorney can prove or disprove almost anything regardless of whether it's true or not yeah and so that's the tough part is like overwhelmingly you might feel that something is so obvious and when the jurors find the opposite it's because the attorneys did a great a masterful job of painting things in another way oj obviously did it i think so i do too um jean benny ramsey what do you think happened to her um (laughs) you know i i for that case personally it's always come back to the ransom note for me the ransom note I could never get around who would have written and left that ransom note had it not been somebody on the inside. I feel like her family is hiding information. My understanding, and and I haven't followed it all that closely, but my understanding about the DNA that was found inside of her underwear um, didn't match any of the family members, so they publicly apologized to the family, and, and I thought that was really strange because touch DNA can come from almost anywhere, and it doesn't prove who did it or who didn't do it, and it, it just always comes back to that ransom note for me. I would need a, a really solid explanation of how that ransom note was left on the family's notepad using the family's pen, and it closely resembles the mother's handwriting. You know, they show side by side, right. and it's like, I don't know. Something is very fishy about that. It also doesn't fit the profile of past ransom cases they don't usually leave a three-page written letter right. that they wrote at the scene of the crime while the family was sleeping upstairs yeah that's not typical but that doesn't prove anything but that's just what's always swayed me is the ransom note is very unusual yeah so interesting we got chris lambert here uh, we're talking uh, everything from the chris and smart case to uh, what chris has been doing since then uh, when we come back uh, tomorrow I want to talk to you about, of course, uh, your music. We have a new album coming out. Um, what is next for Chris Lambert? I know there's a few different cases that you've been looking at. Would we ever expect um, you to dive in on something different, maybe a, a follow-up? I don't know. Uh, we'll do that when you come back tomorrow. You done hang out? Absolutely. We're going to talk about his music. And first, we're going to talk about how the music was really threaded into the podcast. A lot of folks don't even know that he scored the entire podcast himself. And scoring is like when you're watching something dramatic and you hear like you're watching that Law & Order episode or, or that scary part or that triumphant part or that sweet part of the movie or shoot, even like an episode of Full House when Danny Tanner would like sit down with the girls and that music would come in. That's scoring. It accentuates the emotion of what you're taking in. And when you don't know, 
its effect, it's even more effective. So being Chris Lambert is a musician, he scored the entire podcast. He actually talks about how you can go to his Bandcamp page, Chris Lambert Music at Bandcamp, and literally listen to the music, just the music. It's fascinating. Check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. So this soundtrack is called People vs. Flores. Here is like track, say, I'm just going to pick a random one, track 14, titled, Your Honor, I Have a Motion. And this was all in the podcast. Here's another one called Sleepless in Salinas. Another one called Closing Arguments. So you get the idea. A tremendously talented musician. He was doing music as his career before he jumped in in 2019 to start the podcast. And now he's going back to his music. So not only will we talk about Chris and his music now, but also how his music played a huge role you might not even know in the Your Own Backyard podcast as well. Chris Lambert is up and Adam. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me again. So some, gosh, so many great conversations from uh, this week. I encourage you to go back and listen to the first day where we were talking about you know, the, the, new, the new lawsuit alleging Cal Poly with several things, including wrongful death in the Chris and Smart case, just for how that was so mismanaged back in the day and you know, maybe spurred by the uh, comments of President of Cal Poly Jeffrey Armstrong when he told the Tribune that you know mistakes were made and things should have been done differently. Also, our conversation yesterday, we kind of broadened it out to a lot of different uh, crimes and different things, uh, opinions on where Chris stands on a lot of these different things, including uh, the news several months ago when Paul Flores was attacked in prison and how that made him feel... And you really curate that account, especially the Instagram, so well because there, there's no, you're not posting a lot of fluff. Like if something, like when I see something in that feed, I go, oh, something's up, right? You know, and that's kind of really intentional, isn't it? Yes, yeah. The Your Own Backyard Podcast Instagram, I think, has like 105,000 followers now who are interested in hearing about the Kristen Smart case, and it's very intentional. Like I don't post to that account anything that doesn't have to do with that case and anything that isn't something that I've been working on for a while. I never just on a whim say, how's everyone doing? Or, and part of that, you know, I've, I just to maintain the integrity of what I've done this far, I have moved back to working on my music and that has always been my primary career, if you want to call it that. Um, and so it's been important to me not to sort of sully the reputation that I built over on that Instagram account. So so does that mean like when your new album comes out, I'm sure a lot of people who follow your work would love to know about it, but you're not going to be advertising that over there. Right. A lot of people have messaged me and said, please let us know what you do next. You know, please let us know when your music is coming out or how we can hear it. But I thought, I think there's probably a number of people who would not feel good about seeing my new album cover and a, a release date drop over on the Your Own Backyard Instagram account. So if anybody wants to follow those sorts of things, you should follow my personal personal account. It's at Chris Lambert Music. That's where I post about my own life and stuff like that. And also, I think a lot of people who request to follow me there are hoping there's some like insider information oh, right. there about the case. That's not going to happen. Like everything important about Kristen Smart and the investigation into that will always be on the Your Own Backyard podcast account and not on my personal one. What about when you take on 
and I say when, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm guessing it's when, not if, you take on another case and another podcast. I mean, certainly the people of the Your Own Backyard podcast and fans of that are going to want to know. Right. You know, how do we let people know there? How are you going to do that? Yeah. Yeah. I think anything in the same wheelhouse as that, Mm -hmm. I would certainly plug over there and just let people know and then try to quickly move it elsewhere, depending on what I end up doing next. I'm I'm in a period of um, trying to get back to my normal life. And I've spent the last year since Paul was sentenced, trying to relax and take better care of myself and work on, you know, family stuff and and music and the stuff that I've been putting off. And so as far as another case, it's certainly something that I'm not like actively pursuing right now, but there's a few that have popped up that have really uh, got my interest. Is your sweetheart happy that this, for the most part, is behind you? Um, I think in some ways, yeah. I think um, it was a real struggle to have me living three hours north and and only coming home on the weekends. And when I did, being rushed to record an episode just so I can get back on the road. And that took a toll. And um, she handled it very well, though. And we talked all through. You know, we talked every single day and every single break I had. But um, I think overwhelmingly, everybody sighed a big sigh of relief once that wrapped up. So what do we what do we have for new music? Well, I mean, I imagine because the last album you did was what eighteen? Yeah, it came out in twenty eighteen. So we are you know six years. The the album has been in the making. Are we, are we with the same songs? Have you kind of scrapped some and gone back to some or redone somehow? When you when an album takes uh, that long, how does that process go? Um, I, I imagine if it had been that I was actively working on it the whole time that things would have changed, but because I had so much else going on, I, there was a batch of songs that I worked on, I think 2018, 2019. And by the time that the case started to pick up momentum in 2020, it was like, I better start solidifying that album and get it, get it ready. And then when Paul was arrested, that kind of put a halt on things. It was like, okay, now I need to shift back to this documentary. So let's just shelve that for a bit. During the preliminary hearing, it was, I think the worst for me personally out of all of this was just being thrust into that situation. Yeah, that was tough for you. Trying to take daily notes, you know, my hands were not prepared for and then trying to type them up every night and then get back up there and hearing my name brought up and the way they were talking about me. That was when I started like, okay, I need some like respite from this. I need somewhere where I can go that isn't stressful. Having to lawyer up and yeah, fight your own battles. Very rough. So at that time when I was subpoenaed the first time, yeah. I went home that weekend and it's like, it's time to start recording my album because that's what I know and that's relaxing and it's it's something that I'm looking forward to. So I recorded the bulk of it in fall of 2021 during the prelim and then I set it aside and it's like, okay, now that it's going to trial, I'm either going to have to get this album out before the trial starts or just get it set aside and ready so that as soon as the trial's over, maybe I put it out in the fall. And then the trial got pushed back and then it got pushed forward and and the change of venue took place and then I realized I'm going to have to move up there. And so I tried my hardest to get it done spring of 2022 and that I got it like 80% there and it just wasn't finished and I didn't want to rush it. So I set it aside, did all the trial stuff, and I thought as soon as the trial's over, I'm going to finish it up and get it out. And of course, that didn't happen. The energy wasn't there. You know, I, I wasn't prepared to go home and just work on anything else. I needed some time to get back and relax. And then the sentencing got pushed off for five months. And so for a long time, it was like, I'm going to have to do some sort of conclusion episode. That conclusion ended up splitting into five episodes that I put out eventually. And that took 
all of last year. It was my whole year was interviewing people and editing those interviews and hours and hours of information, trying to condense it down into one episode that was eventually too long and then longer than that. It turned into a four-part conclusion with a follow-up interview with the Smart Family that I put out on the one-year anniversary in October. So, Unless someone thinks you weren't doing music during that time because you're scoring your entire show. Uh, correct. Yeah. I mean, literally, like, to the moments of what you're talking about. Like, you were yeah. writing. I mean, so really, you you were just working on other music. Right. And, it, and that amazing can't be done until I finish everything that I have recorded and all the narration, and then I sit down at the piano like, okay, what am I going to play here? What comes in here? And then well, you just, like, literally like, hit play on the podcast like a dry version of your read mm -hmm. and then would you just be like duh, 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 duh. like would you like literally play along to it yes and there were some portions wow. where i did that there were other like on a portions. keyboard like a synthesizer or something or? Uh, yeah everything i have a uh an upright piano that I played a lot, um, you know, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, yeah. everything that I have in my studio. But then there were other parts in this conclusion where I actually started getting ideas, you know, that would pop into my head while I was driving to an interview where I'd think, I have this idea for a theme for the prosecution team. Like, it needs to sound this way. And I have wow. this idea for a theme for the defense and what that's going to sound like. And so I started getting ideas of, which is how I write music typically. Is, is it? Is I, I think of ideas and then I lay them out on a piano or something and try to figure out how to play them. Like if you're driving, are you doing like sounds with your mouth? Like, no, 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 no. Are you doing yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Or are you like opening your phone notes app yeah. and like recording? Yeah, my voice memos are full on my phone. Really? Just, every, just little clip. And every once in a while, I'll open one and accidentally press play and it's just the worst. Like, <laughs> can you play one? Um, geez, let me see if I have one. Let's see if you have one. <laughs> or one that you're comfortable with. Sure. When did I... Here's one that I... Let's hold it up to your microphone. Yeah. <laughs> Just me clunking around. Yeah, yeah, but that's... You're creating right there. Do you know where that was in it? Yeah, so this is the final moment of the last part of the conclusion when I'm talking about what comes next and the prosecution team talking about how they did everything they could and, you know, who knows what the next steps are. Wow. And so I knew that I wanted that sort of vibe for yeah. that part. And so that was something that as I was editing, I, you know, I'd be procrastinating the actual editing work because I'm like, I just have these musical ideas that I really want to make sure come out the way that I'm imagining them. B because the scoring in the moment, a lot of times I'm rushed and I'm just like, I just need a vibe here, right? It's not so much about the melody or what this, that this song needs to stand alone. It just needs to score the vibe of this moment, the attitude or the emotions. And so a lot of times that can just be a drone with just a little piano on the top or a little acoustic guitar doing a thing. And it doesn't need to be all that involved. But then there's other moments in the podcast where it's like, this needs to be big. This needs to be a big moment. And especially in the early parts of the series, I had time to sit down and work those out. What is What does Kristen's theme sound like? So when we're talking about Kristen as a person, this melody comes back over and over again. When we talk about the Smart Family, there's a melody that comes back. When wow, we talk about Hawaii, really? there's a ukulele that comes in, right? And a lap steel wow. guitar. And Did you ever score before that? Um, you know, informally I had, and I also scored a short film that premiered at some film festivals and stuff, and people had asked me to score things before. Um, 
but this was the first time that I was creating the thing and then also scoring it. And wow. the time to do it was just like, I want to, I want to do a good job of this. So I eventually, both of those uh, soundtrack albums are on my Bandcamp page. Mm-hmm. It's chrislambert.bandcamp.com. I put out the original, you know, run of the series and then the People versus Flores trial part of the series. I love that. We played that last time you were in. Yeah. That they was each so have good. their own independent soundtracks that I made. And I put those up because it's like, these are things I worked really hard on. This yeah. is the music that I worked on for this year. It's just not my album, but it is. It's so funny because people, when they make a, a podcast or when they make some sort of production, they might just have, you know, a licensing company that you get, you know, music beds on or, you right. know, but I mean, here you are literally taking the content of what you've already created and then scoring that. I mean, like yeah. literally who does that? I mean, nobody does that. It's right. incredible. Yeah. I, I, Personally, when I listen to a podcast, I can always tell when they're using royalty-free music that they typed in, you know, somber piano or whatever they typed in. Um, It was important to me as a musician, first and foremost, that I want to score this the way that I feel it is. And I I think I talked on your show before about how that part of the process actually took a long time because I was searching for what's the right emotion here. And it's not like a dark horror theme. It's more of like a a sadness and a longing Mm -hmm. and an absence, like trying to figure out how do you understand underscore the emotion of absence of somebody missing and when i figured out certain chords that worked for that or a certain melody it was like oh there it is that's that's what i was looking for here that's what i'm trying to convey to the audience and i think it's probably subconscious for a lot of the people listening that don't even realize what the music is doing underneath is a big reason why they feel the way they do yeah a lot of people talked about the moment where i i talked about the watch beeping in the backyard right? right and a lot of people had grabbed onto that moment like i got chills well a big reason why you got chills you know aside from just the information being shocking is that i brought back a theme from earlier that i've been using that suddenly drops in there and, yeah. and there's some droning going on and building tension and and yeah there was a big part of it is making sure that moments like that stick because they're important to me. So I want you to know that they're important. I want to underscore them with why they're important. And especially in this conclusion where I interviewed the prosecution team who couldn't talk for a few years during the preliminary and the trial, they were finally able to sit down and talk. And a lot of those moments were you know, them talking about driving around the Midwest and, and knocking on people's doors and interviewing. And I was starting to hear this little soundtrack in my head, like, what did that sound like? And so I wrote a theme for the prosecution team. And then when they're at trial, I brought back that same melody, but in a much heavier way, because it's like, these are those same guys. Remember the guys from the road? Remember how they listened to a lot of Morgan Wallen on the road and they they ate at a lot of different seafood restaurants, even though one of them is allergic to shrimp. Right. Well, now those same guys are here in the courtroom bringing justice. And that's important that you connect those two things. Right. right? So music was a major part of it for me. It was so deliberate. It's so thoughtful. It's so cool. I love asking these questions. So your music, the the other Chris Lambert stuff, the, the album that's going to come out, how much has it been inspired by all of what your life has been the last since 19? Quite a bit. Um, And not in a way that was direct and intentional, but a lot of times, as a songwriter, I've realized, because I've been doing this since I was 13 or 14 years old, I've been writing music and putting out albums. And so I've learned over the years, a lot of what I'm saying at the time is sort of subconscious that I'm not even really realizing until I listen back a few years later and go, well, clearly that was, you know, when I'm saying this, I was talking about that this was going on in my life at the time. And so it's something that as I've reached the the final stages of completing this album, I look back and go, 
wow, I didn't realize I was writing about that day, but I am, you know, that made it into the song somehow. So it's not, it, it's not me singing about going to crime scenes or being an investigator, but it is me, a, a lot of the impact that it had on my life made it into the lyrics. When does this album come out? I don't know. So I'm still working on it. I'm still trying to get it done. It's It's been like 90% done for a full year now. And I keep telling people that it's almost done. It's so close to is being it done. Is it because you're a little scared to put it out? Is it, is it because you're a perfectionist and it's not perfect yet? Are you kind of putting it off for some subconscious reasons? It's you don't know? Probably a little bit of all of those. Yeah. I don't know that I'm afraid because I... I know that when I put this out, that inevitably it will not be as well received as your own backyard was. I don't think anything I do will ever be as well received as your own backyard was. And so I know... Is that going to bother you? No, no, because I'm prepared for that. Because I know that the majority of people who listen to that podcast probably don't even care about the music that I write and make. It's just not something they're interested in. So I know I'm playing my music to a much, much smaller audience than your own backyard is for, and that's fine with me. So I'm prepared for that part. I think it's just, you know, wanting to make sure I do it right. That yeah. it's, it's been a long time, and I've been, you know, it, it's a follow-up to the last album that I put out, and I want to make sure I do justice to that, that it, it plays back-to-back with that album in a way that feels complete and feels like it makes sense, and just making sure that when I do put it out, that, you know, anybody who came on from your own backyard and it's like, let's me check out what he's done, won't listen and go, Ugh, this is boring. You know? you know, it's so funny you say that because I remember right after my whole uh, thing in mid-October where I got uh, laid off and it was like, I talked to another broadcaster from San Francisco who the same thing happened to him and he started uh, his own thing um, and then on YouTube and he's like now killing it and he told me, I got, we just happened to know each other through a mutual friend and he just gave me this great encouraging talk and he's like, listen, don't wait for perfect. You got to get out there. I don't care if 20, if there's 20 people that liked your show and start listening to your new thing, whatever, 20, then you, you, you got it made. You're going to build off it. You know what I mean? Right. So, so not waiting for perfect was such a good, I don't know. I felt I really needed to hear that then because there is that moment where like, God, what do I do? What's going on? And of course, then it's still foggy of like what just happened and, yeah. you know, trying to piece together what is next. And um, yeah, I'm glad I didn't wait for perfect. Yeah. You know, so right. there, there is something to that. But you know what? One thing that you were talking about a second ago, and I think you're going to have you're going to have this better than most people would, and that is if you listen to a true crime podcast that you might be really into, and you find out the host who you really like also does music, you might go, okay, all right. But you, the way like you just explained how you did the music for the podcast, and people really like you, like they really like the man you are, and and your your heart for this, and I feel those are the kind of things why you like a musician. So I feel like there's going to be people who really want to give you an honest listen just because it's another deeper understanding of you who they like. Yeah. So if you already follow your own backyard podcast, you got to go follow Chris Lambert music. Right. And then um, you're starting a Substack. Can we talk about that? Sure. Okay. So this is interesting because in fact, let's, we're going to, we're going to save this for tomorrow because this is a great story. And I love how we're talking off the air about, and you're so mindful of these things that anything you do after your own backyard is going to be compared, juxtaposed to your own backyard. So we're going to talk about why you're choosing Substack, which I think is a great idea. And more, we continue with Chris Lambert. Yes, sir. All right, we got Chris Lambert. He is up and Adam coming into the conversation here. We start, I mean, this conversation is light. We talk about everything from one star Yelp reviews, his next production and podcast. He'll tease that. We come into the conversation talking about 
the funny things in our Google history. Yeah, it was something my girlfriend started. Allie started posting things I Googled this week, and she would just list out all the so things. Funny. And so then I started looking through mine, and it's like, yeah, this is pretty interesting. It, it really, you don't realize how many things, at least I do, I don't know how many people do this, but just throughout the day, you Google something you heard on TV, you Google something that popped up in a podcast, you Google something you saw at the grocery store, and then by the end of the week, you look back and you're like, why was I looking up yeah. you know, the 1999 <laughs> FIFA Women's World Cup? Like, <laughs> What was, oh, that's right. And then you suddenly remember, that's right. I, re- I was talking to somebody about this. And I, I'm a huge Googler. Like when people, my, I'm also terrible about this. My Safari browser yeah. has the maximum number of tabs. You oh my can God, have tell open. me, I bet I got you beat. How many do you have? 500. Oh, shoot. So it tops out at 500. Oh, God, I got 149 so tabs. What What's terrible about this is when you get to 500, every time you open a new tab, it pulls one of your old tabs that you had open and closes that one to make space for the new one. Yeah. So there's things I, have in tab one tab two that i've been saving my intention is always to go back and read them but i never do i, and, I totally you know, am the same so i way, just dude. leave everything open on my phone all the time would you with me right now would you close all 500 of your tabs oh, i don't think i could you don't think you could do it <laughs> i don't think i could there are you know most recently there are a few things that i've left that it's like oh i need to read this news article okay this is important to me and i've set it aside there's things that like I do that too. I have. I'll um, erase my tabs if you erase yours. But if you don't want to, I understand. I, I'm going to pass. <laughs> <laughs> and th- that's how attached to these things I, I am. That I get. But w- here's what I started doing because I do it on my laptop too. Here's what I've started doing is I'll, I'll write every open tab I have in my notebook and then I'll close it. So it's like I know I can come back to this. And I have never once gone back to look at an old page. I know. Because I it do doesn't the same matter. Thing. Dude, you and I are the exact same mind. <laughs> I probably look like a serial killer mm. when you look at my browser, yeah. like in the office right there. Uh-huh. It's just going to be like, you know, where the, when you have so many open tabs where they just get super small yep. and you can't even read what they are yep. anymore. Yep. And, and then it, like you're trying to find the one that's making noise. So you're just looking for the speaker yeah. icon. <laughs> but they're so small that you can't see that until you right. expand it. Yeah. Or every once in a while, I'll move my mouse cursor and accidentally X out a tab. <gasps> and especially if you do it in an incognito window, because sometimes I'll have all of my tabs open that I'll need a new browser window. So I'll open an incognito window just to open more. Yeah. And then accidentally X one out. And you're like, no. Oh, that was a really important. Right. Yeah, I'm really oh, that's bad about so that. So funny. What does your email box look like? Um, I'm pretty good about checking my email that's every interesting. day. Yeah, I unsubscribe from things right away if they're starting to bug me, and so I really only get important emails. Like if you were to go to like your Gmail or like whatever your normal email is, how yeah. many emails are in there? Do you erase them? I don't erase anything. Neither do I. Uh, I only erase like kind of bulk email stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anything personal to me and. That's become important because for the last six months or so, I was working on this kind of cleanup project at my house and trying to get rid of old stuff. And what I started doing was finding old papers, old photos and stuff. I started working on a life timeline, right? So I've laid out my life from the time I was born until now and major events that I don't want to forget. Like, you know, in 2002, in I think it was April 24th, 2002, I won second place in the regional spelling bee. Like, and I know that because there's a newspaper article about it. So I put that in there. But then it's like, oh, yeah, a week later, I played the talent show at my eighth grade junior high. And so that's interesting to look at those two things and realize they were so close in time. And then pretty soon, I just started filling it out from both directions, just, you know, before 2002, after 2002, up to today, and realized... You know, I've got like 50 pages now of a timeline that just for me, just for me to be able to look back on and go, and I've also moved houses a lot. So it's like, what years did we live in that house? And now that I know that I remember this incident happened 
when we were living here. Is this on a computer or a journal or what? Yeah, it's just like in a Google Docs tab. And so every time I come across a page, it's like, oh, there's the, you know, newspaper clipping from this. Now that I have a date that I can put to it, put that in there. And um, it's just something for myself that I wanted to archive everything and make sure I, I have real issues with not being able to remember things. I have mm. a great, like almost photographic memory about things from my childhood and people I've met that I think would creep them out if they knew how well I remembered. I don't, I didn't forget a single person I went to high school with. Right. And if they walk up to me, it's like, I know things about you that would shock you if you knew I remembered wow. them this many years later. And so I try to play it cool and pretend like I don't remember sometimes, but yeah. I remember a lot. And so it drives me crazy when I forget things or when I can't remember. So you never want to, you never want to be caught forgetting something. So you, you will archive it and, right. and hold on to it. Yeah. You, you, not, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but you hoard a lot of stuff. Do you like, no, hold, no, are you sentimental? No, I am. I'm very sentimental, but physically, like, I'm pretty good about not taking up too much space. My girlfriend and I have, like, one room where we keep stuff stored, and besides that, it's just, it's pretty neat. That's so interesting. I love learning this about you. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to work on next? Do you have another case that you want to get into? Not specifically, but there's been a, a lot of people email me, and especially every time that, you know, Dateline or 48 Hours re-airs one of those episodes, I'll get a new wave of emails from people saying, please look into this case. But they're almost always, like, on the East Coast or so far away that I feel like I couldn't really do anything there. I couldn't do justice to that case. But Does that, that mean that whatever you pick up, it's going to be local? It's going to be here? Yeah, not necessarily local, but at least somewhere that I, is in driving distance that I could spend some time there and come home and... Um, but the closer to me, the better, I think. The whole concept of your own backyard, like this is something that happened right here where I live. So there's been there's been three or four cases that I just keep coming back to over and over that just for my own personal interest, I just think this could be a great documentary really? and somebody could really Can get it. Can you tell in. me what they are or no? I, I'd rather wait. Okay. I'd rather sit on them. Um, is one of them the Thomas Jodry case? No, but you know what? I did... Uh, I set up his website. So the website that his parents promote and use and all that, I spent probably a few months at their house going through all this stuff to put up that website. Wow. And um, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. And I helped with, they got a lot of body cam footage and I helped them put it in chronological order. We put like four quadrants on a screen so they could see every angle that was covered by body cam. We went through his Google timeline together to see like where his phone was every minute the night that he died. And it was really interesting, but they, you know, did they, they, they ask you to do a podcast on this? I think they were open to it. They were open well, to sure, the idea. Yeah. And I was telling them like the way that things were shaking out legally for them. They're trying to like push things with the DA and they're trying so to So for someone, because we're getting into it now, for someone, this is the case of the young man who was, I think, yeah, I know he was drunk, but I think he was pushed off or something would happen because he, he fell stories off of the parking structure. Right. And he, he was being fed a ton of alcohol by a super creepy dude who already has a history in crimes of this nature. Yes. And there's video of, of like Tommy falling down on the ground and then like running. And it's a really, it's, it's a night of mayhem. Yes. And then this guy is just like chilling, watching this all go down. Yeah. It was weird. And like, it, this is one of those ones where you're just like, God, is there something here? I th and then I feel, I just feel so bad for this family because I've interviewed them a couple times and I yeah. really like the Jodries. Um, yeah. It's a tough one. Yeah, it, it is. And, and especially because the angle they're trying to go at it from, they want they want things to be done with the police department. They yeah. want the DA to file charges. And so I just thought this is probably not the best time to make a documentary about this. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, clearly, like I've shared their website a number of times and I've been to their memorial events they have and stuff and check them out. But as far as like telling the story, I just think it's too close in time. Mm -hmm. And I also think that there's a number of reasons why that might harm their ability to move forward with the case. And so until that is sorted out, I think it's probably best to not cover that one in any detail. You are going to do a Substack, which I'm really curious why you're, and I, I like Substack. I, I follow certain people there and I, and I subscribe and pay for some content too. And I like it. I, I figure I want to figure out how to, in my own way, yeah. figure out where, what I can offer to Substack for people who want to, whether it's the food and wine kind of stuff, or if it's, who knows, I don't know where I, where I find myself there, but I'm, I'm certainly um, a fan of the idea because, you know, Legacy media is changing a lot, and I like the idea of someone who I could follow, just follow their content, you know, yeah. whoever it is, whatever it's about. So what are you going to be doing with Substack? So I have been, you know, because I spent so much time away from making music, and now that I'm getting back to it, now that I have time to, when I do put my next album out, I want to be able to tour, and I want to play a set of my own songs. And I was listening to my music and realizing, I don't remember how I played this. I really don't remember what the chords to this are. And some of my earliest stuff, you know, I put out my first album in 2007. So it's been 16, 16 and a half years since I wrote a lot of those. I couldn't remember any of it. And so I got this idea that in order to relearn those songs and go through it and kind of make it fun for myself, my friend and I have been doing this thing where we put every song I've released on a big wheel and we spin the wheel every week and whatever song it lands on, completely random, I have to relearn it and I'll give myself one or two days to relearn it and then I'll re-record a brand new version of it just to prove that here we go, I got, you know, even that little guitar solo in the background, I figured it out note for note, put it all together. Some of them we've taken the opportunity to do a different way. It's like this song was a little acoustic thing. We turned it into like a jazz piano thing now, but it's still the same essence of the song. And so we decided we should put this out as like a podcast. But my first fear is, like you said, everybody is going to compare my next podcast to your own backyard. And I don't want anybody to have the idea that I'm trying to just ride this podcast wave from your own backyard back to my music and like promote myself. So I thought, well, why don't I just put it behind a paywall? I'll just put up this podcast and I'll, you know, super cheap. I'm not trying to make money off of this, but for like four or five dollars a month, you get access to see me relearning my songs and putting out a brand new recording that nobody else is going to get to hear. And then that's it. It was just like every week we'll do a new song and, and okay. see how I can rebuild my repertoire before I go on the road again. And then how long is each episode? We, it's like half an hour. Okay, cool. So what we do is we spin the wheel at the end of an episode and that's next week's song. Uh-huh. We come back and we discuss the song a little bit. Like, how did you write this one? What album did it come out on? What was the inspiration? What's that instrument you're playing right there? We'll listen to the original recording and discuss it. And then after some conversation, I'll be like, here's the brand new version I recorded. We'll listen to it together. We'll discuss it, and then we'll spin the wheel for the next song. Musicians would really like this. I yeah, I, I think, think I'm, I'm into it. I think I'm hoping at least people who know me personally, like friends of mine, will just be curious to see what this process is like for somebody who, like, just earnestly wants to relearn the songs that they wrote and has spent so much time away from it that they need some practice getting back to it, and then. I don't know, maybe those people who listen will be more interested in seeing me perform live to see 
how it comes together. Yeah. But so to just put it behind a paywall to to make the point that I'm only doing this for people who want to follow my music. I'm not trying to replace your own backyard with this. So yeah, it's going to be. And, and is that why you're not using conventional podcast that you know avenues like Apple Podcasts, yeah. like Spotify? So it won't be available to the general public on any of the major platforms. It will only be something you subscribe to listen to on, but, on Substack. But if you subscribe through Substack, they make it super easy to you oh, know yeah. you press play. I'll put a little blog together for each one where we all put sometimes like the handwritten lyrics if I found them in a box or oh, like cool. here's a picture of me playing at that coffee shop we talked about in this episode. What's the name and of your Substack? It's called the Chris Lambert Anthology. So it's just, and it's kind of tongue in cheek, but just the idea of going back and relearning yeah. my, my old stuff. And it's available now? No. So I'm not going to launch it until I feel like I have enough there that it it can move forward because okay. if people are going to be paying for it, I want to make sure they're going to get regular releases. And so right now we're just sort of putting episodes in the can and oh, cool. planning okay. to do that. When would year. you like to see it out? Pretty soon. Yeah. Maybe this spring. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So, but is the Substack even available for one to go like search and hit follow yet? Or I think really? it might be blank. I think oh, okay, right now it. there's nothing on it. But if people wanted to go subscribe, I think they could. The Chris Lambert Anthology Substack com. Yeah, yeah. I like Substack. I mean, I think you know, I got the app and I check it out on my computer. Like, I, I just yeah. I like it. You know. Yeah, I think it. You've seen a lot of journalists moving to yeah, those platforms. That's why I like Patreon it. and Substack. Uh-huh. Where this is for your audience only. Right. And this is supplementing. You know, with the little bit of money you're charging for each post it's supplementing the income that they would be making working elsewhere when you think of like touring and stuff are you ready for to go tour and then just have a lot of people come up to you and ask you about the podcast um i think it depends on where i'm playing i think if i play locally maybe people will come out to see me just so they can say hi i'm still in that stage where when i go because I spend most of my time at home. When I go to a coffee shop, there's always one or two people who comes over and shakes my hand and wants to talk, mm-hmm. which is cool. Like they're always super nice. Everybody's been really nice. But um, I wonder how long that'll last. You know, I don't know if I tour towards the end of this year. I don't know how long that sort of wave is going to last, where people recognize me and want to say something to me. I think it will fade away. Yeah. Do you? Is there any insecurities about putting out music? I mean, I feel like it's such a, it's such a way to put yourself out there. I mean, it's such a vulnerable vulnerable you know write music produce music and then put it out it's an, it's amazing like to me to like comprehend that but is there any like insecurities around putting out music and it being judged by the people who liked your podcast and then being like oh you should stick to podcasts um no because That's i, I awesome. think i don't you. think there's a lot of crossover and i assume a lot of people who like your own backyard might give one or two songs a listen and just decide this is not for me mm-hmm. but i don't think i make music that's going to upset people i don't oh, think sure, i make right, music yeah. that anybody's <laughs> just going to be disgusted by in fact one of the better experiences i had with a uh, somebody who really doesn't like me they're like one of a few people who have emailed me to just say i hate your podcast i hate everything really? you've done i think you pointed the finger at the wrong guy i think you're a terrible person that being said, I listen to your music and it's pretty good. Really? <laughs> and I thought, you know what? It would have hurt my feelings more if you felt the other way around. Yeah. It would have hurt my feelings more if you're like, your music is awful, but I love your podcast. So I thought that was really interesting that somebody who just has nothing but hatred for what I've done to listen and go, your music was good though. So That's interesting. Yeah, I think I make I, I make pretty accessible music that almost anybody would listen to and go, all right, you yeah. know, it might not make you passionate and it might not be the most exciting music you've ever heard, but it's authentic and it's who I am and it it's it's not too objectionable. Yeah. That's so funny that somebody would like 
it's so, I feel like we're in a time now where you, you could just not like something and just turn the channel, not listen to it, not patronize it. Right. But it's like you have to go out of your way yeah. to write something and yeah, scathing. Think, and you know, we're, we're in this like era of things like Yelp and YouTube oh. comments where people feel like they're an authority and they because there's a comment box Everyone's that whatever expert. I say is going to be important. And right. Even, even putting out your own backyard on Apple Podcasts, you have no option but to allow people to rate it yep. one to five stars mm-hmm. and say anything they want about it. And some people say really mean, hurtful things that other people, when they're checking out your podcast, will read and might, before they even press play, mm-hmm. might be tainted by what they've read. And so that's vulnerable to, to put your stuff out there and just because there's a review section, now everybody's an authority on whether you're good or not. And sometimes, you know, there's people who And when who you get listened. so big, when you get, when you, there's a certain level of like popularity and like notoriety that once you achieve, the numbers are just, you're going to have some haters. Sure. Whether they're deserved or not. Like yeah. you're going to have a certain percentage of people who are just going to like, you know, shit on it. And right. And I cannot complain about the proportions. Like as far as my breakdown of reviews goes, yeah. I've been very blessed to get mostly great reviews. Right. And, you know, every once in a while there's somebody who says, love this podcast, love everything you did, but wasn't crazy about the mixing or the sound levels. One star. Okay. <laughs> and so you're like, so this is the worst a podcast could possibly be <laughs> because of one. But they do that with Yelp too, right? They'll go to Yelp and say, this is my favorite restaurant ever, but today the manager said something not very nice about me having my dog there. One star. Right. This is the worst a restaurant could possibly get. I love reading I think, Amazon comments for the same reason. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I used to do, on an old podcast I had, I used to do dramatic readings of Yelp reviews where I would just pick a restaurant and read all of their one-star reviews with music behind it, like sad piano music. And I would do dramatizations of like, this ruined my life because the pickle was a little soggy on my sandwich. That's so and clever. It's like, Come on, take some perspective. Let's do one of those right now. <laughs> sure. Let's do one. Let's, um, <laughs> let's not do something locally. What do you think? We should go to, name a city. Sacramento. Sacramento, and then give me a kind of place. Coffee shop, sandwich shop. I think sandwich shops are usually pretty good because people have strong opinions about what goes on their sandwich. That's a great point. All right, here we go. Sacramento sandwich shops. Did you score these two when you did it? Or you just find music? I just grabbed it. Yeah, I did like How to Save a Life by the Fray. I love (laughs) it. Just playing in the background. It's really sad. And I would do different voices for each one. But like, this is the ones I'm talking about. So this is written by Marlene P. She gave Pluck Chicken one star. And she says, We were very disappointed in the watermelon salad. We had a small order last night in Pleasanton, and it was amazing. We ordered three large today in Sacramento, and there was less salad than the small size in the bay area yet it cost more it also had less arugula and cheese the watermelon didn't have any flavor very disappointed so her one star review is based on the fact that she had an amazing meal from them yesterday but today it wasn't as good so on the scale of one being the worst and five being the best this is the worst that's what i mean it's like there's no perspective here on how bad this restaurant is because you read it and go well, that doesn't sound all that bad. It yeah. sounds like you went back because it was so good, and the second time it was less good. <laughs> so one star doesn't feel because fair. That's a rucola. One star Yelp yeah. reviews. I love read by Chris Lambert. That is so good. But restaurants and motels always have the most dramatic. It's like this experience has completely ruined this place for me. Hotels. And then you read the details, and you're like, 
I mean, it sounds inconvenient, but it wouldn't make me no. say this is as bad as a restaurant could possibly be. My favorite trope is if you read these, everybody who gives one star their first sentence says, I wish I could give zero stars. I know. <laughs> and so I, I made myself a t-shirt that says, I wish I could give zero stars because everybody for some reason is upset that they have to give that one. Right. Yeah. And so it's just like, they're so mad that so they have to true. give one star, but it's like, you understand this is a scale from one to five and one is the worst, but they still think they don't deserve that one star either. Uh, you did a children's book with your wife for Christmas. Tell that story really quick. <laughs> yeah. Girlfriend, not wife yet. Oh, sorry. But we're working on it. We did, we wrote a children's book about our dog, Basil, and it's called Goodnight Baz. It's like a take on Goodnight Moon. Mm-hmm. And so she did these drawings that are in the style of Goodnight Moon, you know, big splashes of color and drawings of friends of ours and, and the dog park and just places we went. And then I wrote the like poem that goes along with it. So all the things that he, you know, he puts on his little harness when he's on his way to a walk. Yeah. So he He's like, good night, little harness who takes right. me on walk. Aww. And then the next page is like, good night to uh, DoorDash. I'm not supposed to bark. And like everything <laughs> like breaks down basically the things that he responds to and reacts to. And even when we read it out loud, he gets all excited because we're saying all his favorite words in a <sighs> row, you know, all of his friends' names. And, and this is for something you made for your close friends during the holidays. Yeah. Every year for Christmas, we try to do something personalized, like something that we made. And this year it was like, we're going to get this hardcover children's book pressed. It's kind of expensive to yeah. get copies. So I think we got like 10 copies for our closest yeah. friends and family members. And oh, then what a had a blast gift. watching them read it out loud. Like they open it and then it's like, you got to read it right now. And everybody laughed so hard and had a really good time with that. I've always really enjoyed following you, like your personal page at Chris Lambert Music, because I get to see a little bit more of the inside of like your sense of humor, your quirkiness, you and Allie's like relationship, which is really cute. So it's really fun to follow like that side of you, knowing that I get to talk to you about this other side. And I can't thank you enough for all week long. I mean, what a great conversation. In fact, I think what I should do is take all the days that we have had you on and cram it together for one long form thing we'll publish you know on the weekend but um, if you've been listening to the show all week you've heard Chris Lambert here it has been so special from you know breaking down the latest of what's going on with the lawsuit with Cal Poly to what you've been doing in the interim uh, your music we read uh, Yelp reviews one star Yelp reviews and we had a lot of fun this week so I can't thank you enough for the time come to the Lobro Studios and hanging out with me in San Luis Obispo you mean a lot to me your work means a lot to me and I just can't wait till I get to have you again man thanks for having me I feel a lot looser than I did last time we talked. A lot really? less tension and yeah. and coming off of that trial, it was a it was a hell of a year to get back to normal life. So I feel a lot healthier now. Yeah, good. Good to hear, man. Yeah. Good. I'm glad you're taking care of yourself. And you know, I wouldn't even say uh, best of luck because that's not fair to people who you know who actually need it. You don't. So uh, you're awesome, man. I really appreciate you. Thanks. You're up in Adam with Adam Montiel. Adam Montiel. Community content from Concentrate. Available wherever you get your podcasts. For links and more, visit adammontiel.com.